you know, we all have, and I think this is, you can relate to this, I think, as I could, that all of us have goals that we put ourselves every year, whether it is getting fit, reading a book, that's mine, I'm reading, I'll give you, I'll have to get through what I want to do, but like halfway to tell you what I've been doing. So, but reading books, improving your professional development, right, uh, in your job, maybe taking classes, going back to school, because you know that when you start the year, you need some, um, you know, some, some like pillars to look to, some anchors to hang your vision onto for your life, and the more you do it, the, the more that you um, end up transforming whatever area of your life you want to transform. And on a fascinating book, and this is a secular book, not a Christian book, so I'll just say that, a really excellent book on habits, and maybe you, you've heard of this book, but it's called Atomic Habits. James Clear writes this, success is the product of daily habits, not once in a lifetime transformations. And, and his, really his main point is that little habits, tiny habits, not the big ones, right? I'm going to read the Bible in a year type of thing, you know, that I'm going to do it. And then you, you know, January 2nd, you're kind of like, oh man, I failed, I'm done. But little, little changes uh, really make an, uh, a great impact in your life. And, and, and people actually, this is, I believe, best-selling book the last two years or last year or so. But, you know, as I was reading this and I talk to people, I think about um, how often we strive for professional personal, physical development, and I can't help but wonder if we have strayed afar from the spiritual practices for our spiritual development outlined in the scriptures. If we're so focused on all these other areas that really produce some sort of momentary growth, when ultimately there is an eternal uh, development that God wants to do in our spiritual lives. So when we talk about spiritual disciplines, when we talk about practices, and even spiritual formation, and you're going to see what I mean when I say that term, uh, practices like prayer, reading the Bible, fasting, often seem like, oh man, like, got to get ready for it, you know, it's, it's practices, it's behaviors. However, my argument for you the next three weeks is that these practices of spiritual disciplines or, um, you know, that we find in the Bible it's actually grounded in something else, not a behavior, but it's centered on your formation as a disciple of Jesus. Practices are formational tools towards Christ-likeness. So we worship here, we say, Jesus, we love you. Jesus, make me more like you. Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to know you. All these prayers that we made, these songs that we sing. But to get there, there are practices for us to see that and to experience that. Consider what Paul says in Romans 8, 29 about the elect. For those who God foreknew, he also predestined. So he chose believers before the beginning of time, before you were born. God saw that you, he was, was going to have you. He chose you to be saved. And he says this, to be conformed or shaped to the image of his son. This word conform in the Greek means similar in nature, similar in form, just like a son, when you look at maybe David and you go, that's just like Omar. He kind of looks like him. He walks like him, talks like him. Your kids may be the same way. They are conformed to your image because they're your children. If you were to ask the Lord, if you're in prayer, you'd ask, Lord, what is the ultimate purpose of my life? He wouldn't give you Rick Warren's book, Purpose of Your Life. He wouldn't do that, I'll tell you right now. But he would say, he would point you to this and he would say, you are predestined to glorify God and to be conformed to my image, to the image of my son. Consider what Paul tells the Galatians. 
He prays, Galatians 4, he prays this, Oh, that Christ may be formed in you. Same word as in Romans 8, 29. To the Corinthians, what does he say? All of us with unveiled faces seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror are being what? Transformed, same word, being transformed into the image of the Son. To Timothy, the Lord charges this, have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales, but train yourself, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, train yourself, yourself to be godly. Train. You know what training is, those people that work out? You wake up every day, you watch what you eat, you go to the gym, and then you have your post-workout meal, you get back, you rest, you're eight hours a day, you get back in the morning, you're training to do what? To be fit. Paul tells Timothy, you got to train to be godly. It doesn't just happen. We don't just zap, you don't come to the front, we anoint you with oil, and then now all of a sudden you're a super spiritual Christian. That's not the way it works. There is a practice. How often do we care more about our other areas than the main eternal growth that God offers us? John declares that the beauty and essence of Jesus' return is not just that we're going to be with him, but we're going to be like him. This is what he says in John 3, Dear friends, know that we are children of God, that we will be as we have not yet known. We, but we know that when Christ appears, so when Jesus comes back, here we go, we're longing for Jesus, we shall be like him. That's the goal. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The more we see Jesus, the more we encounter Jesus, the more we're transformed into the likeness of the Savior. So when we talk about spiritual formation. We're talking about transformation of, the, of, the, of our life. We're talking about practices that the end goal is Christ-likeness. And so we do a self-analysis. Am I like Jesus? You know, when I first became a believer, uh, my disciple, my, the person who discipled me gave me a little, you probably had this, a little band. You know what the band said? WW what? JD. You know, and you go, what would Jesus do? And literally, I, as a new believer, you're going, should I watch this? What would Jesus do? Nope. I mean, everyone, you know, everything was a no. That's the goal of that, right? It's, it's, a, it's a discipleship tool. But, but really, that's, that's, in one sense, it could go to extremes. But the goal of all these, as fallen and, and as imperfect as these tools may be, is Christ-likeness. When we talk about spiritual formation, it's about your life being transformed, shaped into the image of Christ. That is the end goal. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to explore and open up Three disciplines, and God willing, we're going to look at other disciplines throughout the year relating to Sabbath, rest, and all these other ones that I'm there with you guys. I mean, I'm struggling through some of these um, in our culture that is so fast-paced and doesn't give you time to think. But nevertheless, we must go at it together. Principles like uh, fasting, Bible reading, prayer, right? If you're a Christian, you're like, duh, you know? Uh, But you'll be surprised with all the resources that we have how little of this we um, engage in. Our goal is to introduce these practices throughout the year with the aim of allowing the grace of God, hear that, we're gonna, I'm gonna show you why I say that, grace of God to transform us, not the practice. I know people that fast and pray 20 hours a week and their lives is not united with God. They have, I heard a story of a, um, a pastors and seminary students, um, seminary uh, teachers, PhDs, two PhDs living in adultery living in pornography, living with broken marriages. Like, it's not about the practice. That's what I'm trying to say here. This is about the grace to do it because we get to be transformed into the image of the Son. And so with that, why don't we pray? Let me pray as we kind of jump in this morning. 
Father, we come before you and, and we, we admit, Lord, that it's hard for us to be disciplined. It's hard for us to be, you know, continually um, do something repetitively. We're fallen. Father, we're weak. We're distracted. And so I pray that we may, um, may open our hearts, Lord, for you to convict us, for you to give us a vision for our lives, Lord, and a, a renewal of purpose, a renewal this year um, to fasting, to praying, to um, reading the word in, in a new way that's delightful and not burdensome. Father, we thank you that um, the end goal of the whole thing is that we may be like your son because that's where we find rest and peace and safety. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before we jump into practices we sort of have to do a disclaimer. Sorry about that. <laughs> we, have, we sort of have to do a disclaimer um, because, because just like when you say these big things like spiritual practices, fasting, and prayer, I know where, you're, I know where your mind's going. I got to do it. Oh, I got to do it. I got I to get, get out the calendar. I got to get into it. I got to jump into churches. I know that's where we're going because we are, by nature, people of behavior. So we kind of have to do a disclaimer. You know, when you buy a car at the very bottom, it says, well, you know, you sure you want to buy this car? Are you sure you want to do this? Before you do it, read this. I'm going to give you the read this part of this uh, uh, concept of spiritual formation, being shaped into Christ's likeness. And I'm going to give you three. And these might be helpful for you as you begin to consider, and you and your family and your kids even, already uh, how to live this out together. So the first one is this, is that growing in Christ's likeness um, is an invitation for all people. It's not coerced. The church is not pressing it on you. It's an invitation. Just like Jesus says, follow me, I will make you fishes of men. Really, the gospel is an invitation. It's not something we beat people down with that you have to do spiritual practice. It's an invitation to people, and it's for all people, and this is the key here. Imagine a group that we invite to this church, and we're going to have a prayer meeting. You have here on one end a, a, a seminary theologian here. Um, they're, they're about to pray. He's about to pray. Then you have the, um, a mother of, of two children who she brought, and, and she's carrying the baby on one hand, you know, with the bag and the poop diaper in the bag. And then you have a, an addict that just came in, and these two people are praying. They're about to say, we're going to jump into the spiritual formation. What's, what's the worry here? What could happen if we see this from the externals? Who would really keep up with those formational principles? I don't know about you, but I would say, I mean, he, he knows his stuff, right? He knows he has to pray. The mom, she's too busy. It's probably not for her. For her, you know, this brother has other issues to deal with. Spiritual formation, you know, we can look at it and engage and begin to almost discriminate in a way of who should do it and who should not. The fact is that despite all their differences, they're all equally invited to participate in the process of spiritual formation. Here's what this means: No matter where you are, this is an invitation for you. All of us are pots, pieces of clay molded into the vessel by God's own hand in its own way. You might be here and saying, I've never done it. I've never ever thought about praying an hour every day. I mean, that's just so crazy. I could never do that. Guess what? This is for you. <laughs> Maybe you've, you've done it and you failed. You tried fasting and you go, man, I can't go like a morning without like eating. I can't. I'm, I love to eat. Well, this is for you. doesn't matter where you are in your spiritual walk. This is for all people. Spiritual formation is being shaped into the image of Christ. It's not for a select few. It's not for the pastor. It's not for the spiritual elite. It's for you, wherever you are in your walk, even if you're a new Christian, even if you're coming back to Christ, even if you're a student, even if you're, ready for this? Even if you're a child, 
you can instill spiritual practices from the, from the very early age. So, so one, uh, Christ-likeness is for all believers. Two, spiritual formation. Christ-likeness happens by the direct work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're not fasting and praying to get the Holy Spirit. Let me say that. You've got to write that down. You've got to put that in your heart. We're not fasting and praying so that you know, um, we can somehow be superpowers. That's not why we do this. Instead, it is Christ's likeness. Is, could that happen in the process of you know, fasting and praying and reading your Bible? Yes, you're going to grow in relationship with Christ. You're going to love him more. But, but the ultimate aim, we're not doing to get something, but it is the inner work of the Holy Spirit as an act of worship to God that we do this for. We cannot, by direct effort, change our heart. The active agent of transformation is the Holy Spirit. He regenerates, enlightens, motivates, empowers the believer in their inner being by the indwelling presence of God in their hearts. Ready? Here's the prayer you should be praying the next year or so in your life. And this is my, my prayer starting January 1st. This is my prayer. Holy Spirit, make me more like Jesus in word and deed. That is my prayer. Holy Spirit, I don't say, Lord, help me fast better. Lord, let me pray more. Lord, let me read your Bible more. Give me books that engage me more with, I mean, you could, that's great, pray that. But you should pray first, Holy Spirit, awaken me. Awaken me to be more like Christ. And as we pray that, as we are open to the Spirit's work, our hearts begin to tenderize and begins to move in the way he leads. John 16 tells us what the Holy Spirit's like. The Spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak his own, but he will speak what he hears from the Father, he will glorify by taking what is mine. He will glorify by taking what is mine and disclosing it to you. If you go to a new city, right? When you go to a new city, you don't, I mean, maybe you do this. You do Google, right, where to go and what to eat. And those are great. But you know who are the best guides in a city? The locals. The people that know how it works. The people that know where to eat, how to do it, when to eat. The Holy Spirit is that guide in our spiritual formation journey. We're not going to grasp three practices, put them on the wall, and just check them off. We're going to say this, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live this out? Maybe he wants you to do one day of prayer, one hour a week. That's where he wants, well, that's what he wants you to do. Then you do that. Maybe he wants you to fast, you know, I don't know, three days in a 21-day period that we're, we're doing. That's, follow the Holy Spirit. Don't follow fallen people. So for us, we must come to this and say, spiritual formation happens by direct work of the Holy Spirit. He's guiding us. It is important to remember that the Holy Spirit works individually into each person. This is why some people have a grace to fast. Some people have a grace to read the Bible. Some people have, the, I mean, sometimes I talk, I've, I've met a pastor here that used to pastor this church, and he pulled out, I'm not lying to you, and I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, at least 80 different prayer cards uh, in the last three and a half years. And then he pulled out these other cards from the 70s and 80s, and he had like my name from a year ago that he heard I was here, and he, was, he had all these prayers for me. And I'm just like, my prayer journal is like all over the place, right? My prayer journal is like on my notes, it's on my computer, it's on my hand, you know? And I'm going, like, I want, like, that. and, and you, you begin to go, that's what I want, and you go, yeah, but what does the Holy Spirit want you to do, right? You're uniquely made in the image of God for a way to practice these principles. So one, don't be hard on yourself. Two, ask the Holy Spirit to awaken this in you um, and to give you these unchanging truths. All right, last one. And this is, I think this is the most important. Christ-likeness is grace-driven. 
Christ-likeness is grace-driven. Spiritual formation is not perfection. Spiritual formation is ongoing transformation by the power of His grace. The more of the cross we receive, the more of this salvation that we embrace, the more of the blood of Christ that we apply, the more of the redemptive work of Christ that we grasp, the more we're able to say, of course I want to pray. Of course I want to fast. Of course I want to read my word. I want to know the one who saved me. Richard Foster writes this, and this is important. Uh, My bad. That's just for me. All right. Now, these little exercises of service or worship do not make us righteous. Righteousness, he's talking about uh, discipline, spiritual disciplines. Righteousness is first and foremost always a work of God by grace through faith. There is a danger when we think about fasting, prayer, and reading the Bible uh, in believing that these practices make us more elite. If that's what happens when you do that, that you've done your homework, let me just say this, your Christ-like formation is kind of like opposite of the way the gospel works. We've turned it into a works-based practice, not a grace-driven practice. Not to go, we're going to go deeper, a little bit deeper into Matthew 6 later, but consider what Jesus tells the Pharisees in Matthew 6, right? He calls them hypocrites. He calls them, uh, you know, just two-faced. Why? Because they're practicing fasting, giving, praying. Why? With work, as a work-driven way of um, relating to God, transactional-driven. If I fast, then I'm going to get this. If I pray, then I'm going to get that. And that's why we do it. If you do it that way, let me just say, this is a principle. It's grace-driven. It's not works-driven. You're not getting anything from him other than him, than his glory, than a greater revelation of his grace. And in that, he begins to show us other things that he's doing, and we give him praise for that. All right? Okay, you guys with me so far? That's a disclaimer here. And and I pray that you consider that as you uh, pray to the Lord about how to uh, walk into practices. Okay, so this this morning, we're going to touch on fasting touch on fasting. And fasting, I think, is um, um, a practice that I don't think I have to tell you what it is, but I'm going to do it just for due diligence, right? Uh, But a biblical definition of fasting is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for a period of time for spiritual purposes. To fast in the Bible is to voluntarily reduce or, or, or do away with the food for a specific time and for a specific purpose. And it's always connected to prayer. Now, it's interesting enough, and again, I say this because maybe you've heard this, that fasting right now is the most trendy of diets. I don't know if you're in the, in the, in the working out world, but I mean, I've been into fasting. I did that for a while, which is amazing. It's one of the most popular ways to lose weight. You know why? I was thinking about this. Because you don't have to change what you eat. You have to change when you eat. It's not, I mean, I don't know. That's, if you're dieting, man. That's great. That's awesome. You can eat the same thing. Just don't eat it when you usually eat it. That's how I rationalize what I'm doing, okay? Um, but people fast today. I mean, you have uh, benefits of losing weight, lowering uh, blood, uh, blood, uh, blood pressure, uh, reducing stress. All right, yeah, we want that. <laughs> uh, boosting brain health. All right, you want to be smarter? Here it is, fasting. So, I mean, in one sense, you're like, oh, I'm already fasting. I'm already kind of in this circle of uh, kind of getting healthy. But let, needless to say, I'll say to you what my first disciple, uh, personal disciple me told me. Fasting is not dieting, right? Fasting is not dieting. That's like, doink. Yeah, of course, that's not dieting. Um, so to understand fasting, it's not just giving us a definition. We have to see how it was practiced. How was it practiced in the Old Testament in some uh, examples? Then what does Jesus say about it? And then how do we as a New Testament church then partake in it? 
And so I want to give you first some occasions for fasting in the Old Testament. And these happen more than once, but these are at least uh, foundational to how fasting was done. And then begin to uh, uh, you know, contrast how we usually um, contour the aspect of, of fasting. So let me, let me begin here that uh, fasting in, in the Old Testament was primarily uh, exercise or practice as a sign of mourning or grief. For instance, when Israel's first king died, you guys know Saul, his son Jonathan, along with his army, the first thing people did is they buried his bones under a tree, and then they fasted and prayed. This is 1 Samuel 31. And here, in 2 Samuel 1, we read what was the response. Not only did they fast those seven days, but here we get a general description of what's happening after death, the death of Saul and the death of Jonathan. They mourned, they wept, and they fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and the army of the Lord and the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Okay? There's more examples of this. In the book of Esther, I have the verse here. In the book of Esther, you read of Haman, a commander of the great king of Persia. He was telling the king, go destroy all of the Israelites. Haman, uh, king of Persia says, yes, let's do it. And so what did this do in the people of Israel? He brought great fear. They were going to be destroyed, persecuted. And this is what we read. In the, every province in which the edict or the order of the king came, there was great mourning with the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. When you know death is coming, you begin to fast. That's what they were doing. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, you find this story of David's uh, offspring from Bathsheba, the adulterous relationship that he had, the firstborn. God brings judgment because of the adultery act. And he says, um, you know, your firstborn is going to die. David begins to weep before God and, and, and inquire the Lord. And he says, that, he says this, David fasted and went and lay in the ground all night. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up, but he was unwilling to eat. He was unwilling to eat anything from them. Okay, so grief, mourning, poverty of heart were ways in which occasions of fasting were warranted. This is why people fasted. It was deep, deep grief. Now, naturally, you see how the Lord connects this to regular life because fasting is a natural response to grief and tragedy. Even without the Bible, if you notice, the intense emotions that come with the events that, dis that disrupt our lives, it disrupts our eating habits. I've had, you know, there's been times where I had to sit with folks who've lost loved ones, and you know what happens? They don't eat for days because loss does this to you. Pain, suffering gives you an ache in your heart that food cannot suffice, it cannot fill. And so in one way, fasting is natural in times of grief, but also fasting was called by God for, for, for God's people to grief and mourn. It was a way to do it. It was both a, a way of grieving and a way of humbling ourselves before God and imploring Him for help in time of need. That's what fasting was in this occasion, crying out to God, help me, Lord, help me. So here I am fasting, all right? Uh, the second way you find a practice is also connected to repentance, Repentance, what is repentance, right? Change of mind, change of direction. The, people, the moment people wanted to say, I am the Lord, I want to follow Yahweh, there would be a turn in their lives, and that was an indication of transformation in their lives. And there's many examples, I'll give you just one. 
King Ahab, 1 Kings 21. Ahab, and again, maybe you're familiar with the king story here, but he was married to a woman called Jezebel. Jezebel was like his puppet master, and, and he had to do everything she said, and, and, and so he did some pretty evil things, killing uh, prophets, murder innocent people, stealing, oppressing people, taking people's vineyards without even asking. He was just, I, oh, I mean, he wanted it, and he asked his wife to go get it for him. He was a power-mongering king. Now watch this. God pronounced judgment over him, and he said, you, I'm going to judge you and your household. You are going to die. I'm going to judge you. Now watch this. Despite all the evil that he had done, despite all that, despite the judgment of God, you know what Ahab does in 1 Kings 21? He repents. He comes before God with humility and repentance. You can read this in 1 Kings 21. Fascinating, this story. 1 Kings 21. And he begins to pray, watch this, and fast as he repents. He begins to fast and say, forgive me. Don't kill me, pretty much. Judgment, what did God do? Judgment was deferred to a later generation. Now, uh, check this out. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself? Right before that, in verse 27 and 6 and 7, he's fasting. Humble himself before me because he has humbled himself. I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house of the days of his son. All right, you guys see this here? He's repenting. God answers Fasting, an occasion for mourning grief. Fasting, an occasion for repentance. Give me another example. Well, how about Daniel? Daniel chapter 9, Daniel gives this... If you, if you are going through stuff and you want to repent before the Lord, pull up Daniel chapter 9 and read this prayer. As I was reading this, I just had to stop and go, Lord, I just read it out loud. Please forgive me of my sin. Wash me whole. It's beautifully written, beautifully expressed. But he ends like this. After He says, you know, I come to you with fasting and prayer. He says, fasting and prayer. He's coming to God. And he says this. Uh, oh, sorry. Oh, my bad. Oh, this verse. Not, sorry, guys. My first time with this clicker. All right. Uh, he says this. Listen, listen, Lord. Hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay. Because your city, your people bear your name. That's what he's praying before God, before a sinful nation. He's praying on behalf of Israel for God to have mercy and to forgive their iniquity. He cries out, we're fasting, we're praying, Lord. The most well-known verse, Prophet Joel, Joel 2, return to me with all your heart, fasting, weeping, mourning, all right? So fasting is a signal of a commitment of believers onto obedience, a directional shift that begins with this practice of fasting. When the nation of Israel recognized that they had sinned, they came before God, repented, and plead for forgiveness. All right, so again, just, just think about what we're saying here. And when you look at fasting and how we should fast, we should consider these things. We're not just fasting because, well, the church is fasting, so might as well jump in it. <laughs> we're fasting because there's something in our hearts that's crying out in these occasions. Let me give you another one. Fasting, um, is, uh, sorry, sorry guys. fasting is connected to protection and direction. Protection and direction. And here we have Esther again. What does Esther do before she goes to the king and asks him to have mercy on the people of Israel, on the Jewish people? What does she do? This is what she says. Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and, and fast for me. Fast for who? For Esther. Before she comes and asks him to have mercy on her people. Protection. 
Do not eat or drink for three days and nights or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, so once we fast, when we do that, then I am going to go and risk my life on behalf of my people. I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She wanted protection. She wanted God to be with her, and so they fasted and they prayed. In Judges 20, after losing 18,000 soldiers in battle, the Israelites are mourning. They're grieving, but there's also another problem. What do we do now when the whole army is dead? How do we overcome the Philistines and the Ammonites and all the warriors that we see when we have no army? And their question was this, shall we go up? This is uh, Judges 20, 28. They asked the Lord, shall we go up and fight against the Benjamites and fellow Israelites or not? And what, what do they do? They fast before they go and fight. They asked the Lord, what should we do? Well, we don't know. Let's fast and pray, see what the Lord would want. Direction. When we talk about fasting, we talk about protection. We're talking about direction, where the Lord would want us to do. So as we think about the practice, the practice of fasting, we must look at the occasions for it. And they're very clear here. Have to do with mourning, grief for sin, repentance, protection, direction, our foundational occasions for fasting. And so the question for us this morning, and, and then how does it function in the New Testament? How does Jesus bring this together so that we can go and walk this out? Well, he doesn't close the Old Testament, right? Jesus doesn't say, the Old Testament's done. Don't read those examples, no. He gives more breadth and depth to this principle of uh, fasting. And so with that, he looks at the Pharisees and he notices that the Pharisees are actually fasting for, for the way the Old Testament fasts, but what they're doing is they're doing it in a ritualistic way. And so that, that begins to tell us that Jesus was it wasn't about the practice of fasting, but it was about the motive for fasting. It was about the motive of the heart. It was the manner and motive of the heart. He says this, when you fast, what's the assumption there? The new believers are going to be fasting in this age. Not if you fast, but when you fast. And he says, don't do it like the Pharisees. And he says this, this is Matthew 6, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show that they are fasting. Luke tells us that the Pharisees fasted twice a week. If you wanted somebody that was walking out spiritual principles, you look at the Pharisees. You know, you go, these, are, these guys are doing it. By the time Jesus arrived, however, fasting had become a spiritual ritual for the spiritual elite. So Jesus now says the occasions continue. We should still fast. But you know what? Don't do it like the Pharisees. That's the thing. Before you think about the practices, what we started with grace-driven spiritual practices, it's about the heart. It's the Holy Spirit causing you to fast. It's the Holy Spirit bringing about, shining a light on an occasion in your life where he's asking you to fast. And so we partake in it. This is what he says in Matthew 6, verse uh, 17. Put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. All right, so, so here, here is what Jesus does now in the New Testament as we think about fasting. He begins addressing the, the manner and motive for fasting. What is the manner for fasting in the New Testament? It's not just the act, but it's a sincere, in a sincere way before God. When we fast, we come with sincerity of heart. We come with humility before God. We come preparing that we may glorify God alone. And that is the motive of fasting, to please God. 
Not to please man, not so that other people may see that we're walking out these spiritual practices, not so that we can have some type of elitism in our lives that we're doing these things, but rather to please God, so that God may be praised. All these occasions, all those practices, including fasting, are done to please God. And so, as we mentioned before, as we lead, uh, as we're led by the Spirit, maybe there are things that God would want us to fast about. People are sick. People lose their job. What's my next step this year? How should I, uh, you know, uh, do this in my children's schooling? What should I do with my job? Should I finish my career? Should I start a new one? Let me tell you something. If you want an occasion for fasting, you want direction. That is a directional reason to fast and pray. In Luke chapter 5, um, and actually you can go with me to Matthew 9. Go with me to Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to come back to Matthew, but I want you to have it open. Matthew chapter 9. In Luke chapter 5, and you have verses that um, are parallel, Matthew 9, Mark 2, Luke 5. You, you know the story of um, Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector as a disciple, right? He goes to the tax booth. He says, come, follow me. He leaves everything at the, at, at the booth. And what does Matthew do? He, he goes and he wants to have a party. They go to his house and they have this party and he invites sinners, he invites tax collectors, people that are really not the ones that you would envision as the first followers of Jesus, but yet they're the ones that are filling his house. Um, and so Matthew rejoices, celebrates, and the Pharisees see this, and they begin to attack Jesus about this party from every angle possible. They begin to tell him, I mean, how can you have these guys in your home? You're the Messiah. This doesn't make sense. But what's even more fascinating is that it prompts them to ask a question that's related to this concept and practice of fasting. And we're going to get there in Matthew 9, but this is, uh, uh, this is in Luke. He says, they say this, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. So they see all this feasting and eating, and they look and they go, all right, that's not right. Because if you read your Old Testament, you know you're the Messiah. You should be fasting and praying at this moment as you're ushering in the kingdom. Two groups, the religious groups, John's disciples, who were, you know, John was, you know, a guy in the desert, right? Super spiritual uh, man, and you have the Pharisees, super elite and, and ritualistic. They say, why don't your disciples fast? Okay, now watch this. This is um, 9.14. Well, first Jesus says, how can the guests of the, bride, uh, of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Or how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? That's the first question that Jesus asks. Jesus compares his presence with his disciples to that of a bridegroom. Now, when was the last time you went to a wedding? Anybody here? Who was the wedding last year? No, last year. Yeah, there you go. Some people went to a wedding. You go to a wedding, right? Picture you coming to a wedding and saying, in honor of the groom, as a sign of mourning, I am fasting. <laughs> Can you imagine going to a wedding and going, listen, I love you so much. I know I'm your best man. But man, I'm just, I want to mourn, man. I just want to fast right now. You would be like, no, man, you got to get those tequila shots, right? Some of you guys, get those, some of those uh, margaritas out. Man, this is party time. This is feast time because we're rejoicing because we're th with the bridegroom. Such behavior would not be honoring to the groom. It would rather be an insult 
Jesus is putting himself in this picture of himself as the bridegroom. Can my disciples pray while I'm with them? Can my dis- fast rather? Oh, sorry. Can my disciples fast while I'm with them, as a sign of mourning, as a sign of grief, as a sign of longing for Him? When Jesus is with His people, it is a celebration of this party. In other words, Jesus had not come to invite us to fast, but to feast. Isn't that powerful? He comes to, he comes, I mean, can you think about Old Testament Jewish thought here? And Jesus is saying to these Jews, hey man, don't fast. <laughs> think about that. Don't fast, but feast because I'm with you. That is, that is what he was doing. His, his prophecy was not being fulfilled. His disciples were in the presence of Jesus, were in the presence of him. Now Jesus, watch this, he didn't teach that uh, fasting was forbidden and useless because there's another clause to that verse, right? What does verse 14 say? And you, you, you have it there. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. And what does it say there? Then they will what? Then they will fast. Ooh, man, that's a kind of a, you know, incredible statement to his disciples. When Jesus was taken away, they will fast. Now, is Jesus in, in us today? Is he in us? Amen. Matthew 28, he is with us to the very end of the age. He is with us, absolutely. The Spirit of God, heaven, Jesus himself, the blessings of the coming kingdom are in us. The blessings of adoption, forgiveness, redemption, union with Christ are with us. But there's another way he's, he's not with us. He's seated today physically at the right hand of God after he's accomplished the redemptive plan of God and he's gone back to the Father, after he's offered salvation to all people and, re- and called to repentance and faith all those who are far away. See, the early church ha- had this idea in their mind. As soon as Jesus left, oh man, it's a time of mourning. It's a time of, watch this, fasting. It's a time of prayer, awaiting the return of Jesus, the physical return of the Messiah. How do you know that? How do you know the early church was fasting? Acts 13 tells us, and actually the book of Acts tells us, that the first thing the disciples were doing to explore and expand the mission of God was to fast and pray. This is Acts 13. Before Paul gets sent and Silas gets sent on the first missionary journey, the church, it didn't say, oh, they happened to be fasting. It says this, while they were fasting and praying, an ongoing action for first disciples of Jesus. What was the church doing the moment Jesus, before the outpouring of the Spirit? They were praying in the upper room. There was a, a, an ache, a, a, a waiting, a longing for Jesus to come with the Spirit. But even after that, his disciples were praying. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas prepare to leave to church in Antioch in Syria. And what did they do? Where shall we go? Let's fast and pray. Prayer was not done away with, but rather becomes a character uh, a, a, a trait of disciples in this age of grace. So Jesus said the time that the disciples will fast will be when he's not here. And because physically he's not here, the time of fasting is now. Until Jesus returns as a bridegroom of the church, he expects us to fast. Not when you fast, but if you fast. He doesn't give us any commands on how to do it, the 21-day, the Daniel, the 40-day, you know, the, the, the water only. He doesn't say any of that, but what he does say is that a trait of believers in this age of grace where he's withholding judgment is mourning for his return. That is the motive, the heart behind fasting. 
The occasions are the same. I mean, there might be grief, there might be repentance, there might be all these other aspects, but we do it with a heart of saying, Jesus, come back. Jesus, return. Made our, uh, make our faith be, uh, make us uh, seen, uh, appear before us, Lord. David Platt said this, we fast when there is separation between the bride and the bridegroom. So when the bride and the bridegroom are together, there's no need to fast. When they're apart and when the bride is longing for the bridegroom to return, the disciples will fast. So church, as his bride of Christ, we come here and, and, and we want to have a life that's marked by fasting. A mark that's crying out for Jesus to return, to see all the evils and the wrongs that we see in our lives and in the lives of this, of this broken world. And we say, Lord, maybe I should fast here, here in this moment. Put aside a food, uh, food for a day, hour, uh, doing all these things is an expression of a spiritual reality. It's, a, it's an expression of the fact that we are aching, that we are grieving, that we're mourning for a world that is sinful, that we're uh, longing for Jesus to make things right. The most un- this is probably one of the most unique practices. This is why we begin here, because it is not commanded in the Bible. You know that? It doesn't say, go fast, but it is assumed. So it is unique because it really, it's really up to you. Each individual person in this room must come to the Lord and say, Lord, is there a reason for me to fast? I know somebody that uh, used to fast every Tuesday and Thursday. And, you know, that was really cool. That was amazing. And, and I go, yeah, I can't do that <laughs> because that's not for me. But what is the Lord calling you to fast? And how is he calling you to fast? So to help you with that, to help you with that, uh, challenge you in that, to consider occasions for fasting. As a church, we're um, starting a... Um, 21-day period of fasting and prayer. Now, when I, I want to clear this up. that I'm not saying that you have to fast for 21 days. You ready? I want you to hear that. That's not what we're saying. It's a period where at any, any given time, people in our church are devoting one day, a lunchtime, an evening of, of, uh, of fasting and intentional prayer. All right, and this is grace-driven. This is prayerful, so pray. Hopefully, if you got my email a while ago, maybe you've been praying and considering how that, that's gonna work in your life because it's not voluntary, as we said. It's not coerced. Fasting is more than an ultimate crash diet. It has a, a purpose. It's expressing a, a, a reality. It's, it's, it's an occasion for fasting. Maybe it's personal repentance. Maybe it's protection for your family, and I'm gonna give you three uh, prayers that we're doing here as a church, and you can add those to your personal prayer um, during these next 21 days. Um, but really, you can do a normal fast, which is all food, uh, just not water, partial fast, uh, a limited diet, an absolute fast, avoid everything, all, all liquids, just you know, see your doctor uh, if you're going to do that. Uh, but just be mindful, protect, protect your heart, your body as you do that. So let me give you, so that's the fasting part. Here we're going to be praying, three prayers. Revival in the Church of America, that is our prayer. We're going to be praying for revival. God, awaken us with the power of the Holy Spirit. Awaken this church. I want to see God awaken me and to love my Bible without needing anybody to tell me to love my Bible. I want to go deep into the Word, awaken churches all around the area who are coming out of COVID, revival. Two, for the Lord to provide our congregation many needs, uh, healing for those who are afflicted with illness, wisdom and strength in marriages. Many of us have been sick the last two, three months. I'm telling you, I've never seen people this sick, ever. We need to pray that God intervenes and heals people. And that's why we're fasting. That's why we're praying. 
Lastly, repentance. Listen, God will not move in a sinful people. God will not move if we're, if we're unashamedly walking in sin. He, he, he would simply, this is not the way the Bible works. So we need to repent. We need to cry out to God as a church, God, forgive us for our sin. How we move without prayer. Have we developed things? Have, are we too religious, Lord? Forgive us for being religious. Forgive us for putting the church over you. Forgive us for putting programs over you. Repentance, all right? That's what we're praying. That's our prayers. And we're, we're, uh, we have a prayer seminar that's happening. Um, Amy, I read her book. She's been with the Gospel Coalition people, with Desiring God. I, I've gotten to know her for the last couple of years. Her book on prayer just washed over me, like renewed my prayer life on an intentional way. And if you want to like just go, okay, I know I got to pray, but I really don't know how to do it in like a really simple way. She will give you, and she's so graceful. She's an excellent communicator. Uh, she has this book and she's going to go over three practices of prayer. It's just two and a half hours, uh, two and a half, well, three and a half hours, three and a half hours, I think. And um, register online on our website. We'd love for you guys to join. And um, that's just an additional resource for you to join us uh, to do that. And lastly, we're going to be reading Mark. So, Pray, read, and read your Bible. 16 chapters. It's on the website. Some days to catch up. There's some studies there that you can follow. Uh, and it's a discipline because nobody's going to be pushing you. <laughs> it's going to be you. you got to pray before God and come before Him. All right. Um, amen. All right. Let, let's pray. Let's pray as we um, open our hearts this year to the practice of fasting. Father, we realize the occasions for fasting, the reasons why we must fast. And so I pray that you may give us direction. Give us direction and give us wisdom and give us a heart, Lord, to really enter into um, a time of formation. Almost like going into school again. Almost like going back into, into the classroom. Uh, I ask you that your spirit may do this, that your spirit may awaken us, and that your power may guide us. So um, we love you and we thank you. 